Yay. Well, Kristen, you want to tell us your story, how you got to become a surgeon coach? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I graduated from residency in 2016 and almost immediately wanted to quit. I'm an OBGYN um, physician and I, it was all because of my thoughts <laughs> come to find out, which then I did not know. I was feeling like all of this um, anxiety about not belonging and feeling like I wasn't good enough. I really didn't belong as an attending physician. Like, am I really the one who's going to handle all the hemorrhaging at night by myself? And it was really um, debilitating. It really became a, a burden that felt so heavy that I would dread being on call for like two days before being on call. And I, I was then, I got, I found myself like Googling how to leave medicine and still afford to pay back my loans. And there were like very few options there. So um, this happened to be around the same time as I, ha as I had my second daughter. And I was also simultaneously looking like how to lose weight, basically lose the baby weight again. Um, and that's how I found coaching through that avenue, which I think this is really common for, I've talked to a lot of physician coaches and this is how we <laughs> kind of find our way. And I listened to another a podcast, Katrina Ubell, who was trained at the life coach school where I was trained. And of course you were trained. And, um, I was like, Oh, this, this sounds interesting. I might as well see if I can use these magic thought things to change my weight. And I lost 50 pounds and it was very successful. And then I was like, oh, well, if this is going to work for weight loss, maybe it'll work for my, my uh, other imposter syndrome thoughts. And I think at the same time, I was trying to figure out like, what was I feeling? And everyone around me was like, oh yeah, that's how you feel. And I'm like, mm, doesn't seem right <laughs> to like work for 50 years feeling like you don't belong. That sounds awful. Um, so then I figured out this thing called imposter syndrome, which I had, turns out I'd had for basically my whole life, which is you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't belong. Someone's going to find out you don't belong and they're going to kick you out of doctor, the doctor world, whatever. So anyway, I applied all this stuff about your thoughts, creating your feelings. And it turns out that the bulk of my problem was that I was having this recurring thought of something's going to happen and I won't know what to do. Something's going to happen on call and I won't know what to do, or I'm going to have a surgical complication and everyone's going to know that I'm not really good enough and then I'm going to get fired. So it was like these two things that were really um, awful and it made me free, you know, it made me feel like I couldn't operate alone and it made me feel like I couldn't be on call. And then I just changed those thoughts and it really didn't take that long, like a few months before I, before I realized one day I was on call and I was like, Oh, I don't feel so anxious right now. I'm like actually kind of liking my job. And it, and I was like, it was, be, it was because I had finally, like my brain finally had, had started to automatically think this new thought that I chose, which was, I can handle anything that comes my way. And that felt true then that was like my new truth. And the rest after that, I mean, the rest was history. And then I was like, wow, this is some major powerful stuff that I never knew about. And then like so many of us, I just felt like this overwhelming desire to share it with other young physicians. Um, and that's when I kind of started just putting myself out there on social media, starting a podcast about imposter syndrome and medicine, and then just met so many people that who were willing to talk about their same struggle. And it, you know, became this amazing space of vulnerability and strength. And then after a while, um, 
the universe kind of handed me this opportunity to become a coach. And I denied it for a little while. And then finally, I was like, no, this is definitely something that I'm called to do because it fills me up. Um, so yeah, that's what I, that's my story. So last um, year, I became a, a certified coach through the Life Coach School. And now I coach um, mo mostly physicians, some non-physicians, but um, mostly physicians and mostly women on overcoming imposter syndrome, self-doubt, becoming more confident. And I talk a lot about what I call like this conscious confidence or humble confidence, which I like to think about as um, this awareness of my value, inherent value. Um, but with also this, this um, foundation of self-love for the fact that I'm not perfect, I'll never be perfect, and that's all fine. And it's how I'm, how I'm made to be. And um, a lot of, of forgiveness and lack of judgment for myself. And I think that foundation is really what keeps me going through all this, you know, the adversity that I've kind of, that we all kind of deal with as physicians and for me, uh, mother and wife and all the other, these other things. Um, and I talk a lot about now what my, you know, my, my additional message has become is, be, is this thought of being like an unconventional, like being unconventional as a physician, which for me really means having this foundation of self-love and your, the awareness of your inherent value. Because I think once you step into that as a physician, um, you're not willing to do things that maybe you would be willing to do before, meaning like you're going to say no more, you're going to set some boundaries, you're not going to live life in pursuit of perfection. Um, and you're really going to, and you're going to recognize that you can be a physician, you can be a surgeon in like any way that you want to be and create this career that you actually love and is sustainable for you instead of one that feels like, um, a huge burden and is draining the life out of you. So that's my story. That's where I'm at. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. I have a question. <clears throat> yeah. Great, Jess, because I have six. <laughs> well, I have more. I'm just not going to, I'm only going to share one at a time here. Um, so you talked about this transition that you made. And I think what people really want to know is what you actually did. Like, what was your life like in those, in those days and moments when you were shifting your thought from one that was, I don't know if I can handle this, or I, I'm not going to be able to handle this too. I can handle anything that comes in. Like, what was the actual steps you took every yeah. day? Yeah. So what a little bit, what my life looks like. So I work full time. I did then I, I still do now I'm in private practice. So I own my, I, I'm a partner with three other physicians and, um, as a full-time OBGYN, I do full scope, you know, office obstetrics and then surgery. And I have three kids. Then I had two. Now I have three. Um, so it looked a lot like, like taking time for myself um, and, and really kind of being uncomfortable inside of my own body, but in a way that felt like, like growth and not like frustration and irritation. So at the beginning I would be on call and like in my room, like in my call room, like staring at my phone being like, is something like what's going to happen. And it would, I would just feel like this 
pit of anxiety that was like so awful. And I would like deliver babies and do C-sections or like go take someone to the OR for an ectopic, for a ruptured ectopic and everything would go fine. And I would have like these fleeting moments where I'm like, I'm in flow, like this feels good. But I was so overcome by the anxiety outside of those moments that I didn't even see it. I was so blinded by my own anxiety and, and rumination that I was like missing those fleeting moments that were like, I really love connecting with patients in this way and helping people. Um, and so what it looked like for me is every single day, I'm a morning person. So it would be like in the morning, I would really ask myself, like, what do I have gratitude for in, a, in like for my job? Like, what can I really be thankful for? And of course, this is something we all talk about, but it was like, not just writing it down. I'm like, oh, I'm grateful for my, the woman I work with and all that. Like, it can be like that where it's very like an action oriented thing. But for me, I like really allowed myself to feel that gratitude and like really feel like put my, like I would put myself back in the OR, for example, I would put myself back in the OR as the patient is falling asleep and she's like hemorrhaging from her fallopian tube. And I would feel myself grateful in that moment and confident in that moment. So on the outside, it wasn't like I was doing all these additional things or like meditating for hours on end. It was like, I would spend 10 to 30 minutes a day, like really taking time to think about what I do from a lens of gratitude and confidence and practicing that. And a lot, I would do a lot of visualization when it came to surgery, because that was something that really stressed me out as operating alone um, for majors like uh, hysterectomies. And I would just visualize, like visualize, meaning I would close my eyes and go through the case, like visualize my like guided imagery, go through the case, beginning to end, like beginning talking to the patient in pre-op, like taking her back all from beginning, closing every asking for every suture, every whatever, who's my assistant going to be. And then talking to the family afterwards. And I would run through it, like mentally rehearse it. And so I, and then all of a sudden I would go into the operating room for real. And I would be like, oh, I've done this before so many times. I just did it in my head for like a week straight and nothing on the outside had changed. Like I was doing the same surgeries. I was working the same hours, the same job. Like I, I changed nothing about my life at all. I really just changed the the neural circuit, like the neural pathways in my brain. and. I was just devoted to that every single day doing that kind of work for 10 to, like I said, 10 to 30 minutes a day, depending on how I was feeling and how much time I had. And then I don't have to, you know, that's just natural to me now. So I don't know I'm not answering the question, but it was really a lot of just internal work that all of a sudden manifested to like actual living lived experience. I'm so glad that you described that because it's one of the things that I come, um, come up with in um, my own coaching experiences and in my own life is sometimes people think that it has to be like exhaustive journaling or, mm. you know, like sitting in a meditation room or all of these things. And really 
what you just described is so beautiful. And I think is really common where we're doing the work in our own minds, kind of like moment to moment. And in those small snippets here and there, like you mentioned, starting with 10 minutes. And I just want people Mm -hmm. who listen to this to understand that it does not have to be this onerous undertaking. It can be so, so simple. And those simple shifts make such a huge difference in the long run. And you can change your neural circuitry doing it that way. You absolutely can. And so I love that you described it really beautifully. And then the, the mental, the, the visualization, I was just listening to something the other day where, um, they were, it was a, it was an athlete talking about visualizing something from start to finish. I forgot what it was, but I mean, so many things that other professions do, sorry, I have a new puppy and this is going to be a podcast. So I'm always the one responsible for all the ambient noise in the podcast. Um, (laughs) anyway, so, but they were visualizing in that, how that was such an important part of the practice was visualizing plays or visualizing Mm. A to B. And I know in, in what I am an orthopedic surgeon. So when I write out a plan for surgery, I mean, I write out a plan if it's complicated, but that visualization piece is different. It's more active. Mm. You know, it's like you're engaged and you're imagining what your body is doing through the different steps rather than just simply writing out step one, step two, step three. I think that's a really important distinction you just made. So thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, now time for Kelly's six. Um, you talked about you talked about how like and then it was different, right? Mm-hmm. I think and I and I want to kind of pick apart like how do we, because, you know, we're surgeons, we like empiric data, but it's like, how do we, how did you measure? Like, how did you know your life was different? Was there something mm. where you're like, where your spouse or your kids or like, did a nurse say, like, was there any sort of like, cause you're like, is this working? I don't know. Is this working? Or was it truly like you, when you dropped in, you're like, I don't feel shitty anymore. Like, how did mm. you measure change for, for yourself? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that you're right for so much of this, you're like, we rely uh, on so much. We're taught to rely so much on external validation, right. And say, oh, you got this grade or, oh, this attending thinks you're good enough. So that means you're doing it. You're on the right track. And that was really, that was really hard for me to rectify, to be like, "Mm, actually external validation is totally useless and actually detrimental. And in fact, I need to really look inside and validate myself. And this is something I still work on, obviously, like I'm, I'm a human being, but what it was for me is moments like I described, like being on call and, and having an awareness of, holy shit, I'm actually enjoying what I'm doing. And, or I would be like the day before call, I would be like, oh my gosh, like I'm actually playing with my kids right now and not stressed about tomorrow. This is so weird. So what's beautiful about this is that the awareness you need, that you need to work on and cultivate in order to change your thoughts and do this inner work is the same awareness that helps you to recognize that the changes have been made. So, you know, a year before I had done this work, I would—I was so in my head all the time, either anxiety about the future, rumination about the past. I wasn't aware of anything going on, like in the moment ever. I was always like, what's going to happen? 
or did I kill someone or is, am I going to have a problem on surgery on Wednesday or whatever? And I would be missing all the moments like, oh, about how about this patient in front of me who I'm counseling about how she needs a hysterectomy and like, what about that moment? And I was missing it. So it was really training myself and then recognizing that I was having all of these beautiful moments of awareness every day and that that time felt bigger. So that was the, that was the first thing really, as I was like really able to drop into my own awareness and like the feelings I had in my body, which I think we're so disconnected from is like how we actually feel in our bodies. And I was like, you, that was, I felt more unified and whole. Um, and then later on, there was stuff like my husband was like, Oh, you're, you're so much less serious now. Like you're more playful now. And you're joking around more like you used to that stuff came later. It was really the, what for me, like my feeling came first. And then it was probably, yeah, my husband was like, Oh, you're more playful. Cause that's a big deal to me is not everything's that serious all the time. Like some things, sometimes things are serious, not always. And then, um, I think for, it was like my partners then will make offhand comments about, you know, this is a new side of you or look what you're doing or something like that. But um, it's really always begun and ended with me and how I feel in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want just to, to comment on this if she would, but for my experience, like my clinic days, it used to be like, go, 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 go drink more coffee, do, 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 do like such a rushed sympathetic day for me, mm-hmm. sympathetic, like anti-parasympathetic, not like I feel empathy. Um, and now I'm like, oh my God, this day is long. There's so much in this day and I get so much other stuff done in it. And I'm like, it's the exact same day. I'm seeing the exact same number of patients, possibly drinking slightly less coffee, but like the day hasn't changed. I'm just in this like slower rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't catch it while it's happening. You catch it when you're like, whoa, it's only 2.30. Man, this, this day is long. Whereas before it was like, do, 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 mm-hmm. do, for me. I don't know, does that, does that make sense? Jess is always trying to do more parasympathetic and like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, <clears throat> I think that makes a lot of sense because when we're feeling anxiety in our bodies, typically that's more of an activated state activated meaning parasympathetic activation, or I'm sorry, sympathetic activation. Um, and what Kristen just said was so key that I want to circle back to it is being disconnected surgeons. Our brains are like this little brain in a jar. And then there's a flesh bag attached to it. And it's like, there's no <laughs> communication. And <clears throat> So learning how to tune into your body and actually understand where you feel certain things like this has been huge in my own life. And then just the very act of going in and naming where my anxiety lives, like, where am I feeling it? I feel it in my chest and my shoulders. Like I Mm -hmm. tense up, it feels warm. It feels tight. Sometimes things tingle sometimes. Um, sometimes I'm nauseated. Sometimes like I have short breaths and the, like the more granular I was able to get to tune into these different sensations. I think even that itemization of how my body actually feels teaches me how to tune in better to how it feels. And at the same time as like lowering the sympathetic, sympathetic activation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, it's like each little thing that you do to kind of create a plug from your brain to your body increase, increases the capacity for you to have more. Mm-hmm. Each connection then creates capacity for more connection and more connection and more connection and more connection. And then all of a sudden you're having a day like Kelly described where you just like in well flow, I think is a really good term to describe it uh, or just, you know, not hurried and a little more even. And it doesn't mean that you're like now a robot zombie mm-hmm. that doesn't have any fluctuations. There are still fluctuations. Mm-hmm. They're just, it's like, it's like a really mellow sign curve rather than like the jagged curve that of going between sympathetic, parasympathetic, but I'm obsessed with this, like absolutely obsessed. I think it's like the missing link mm-hmm. in our coaching. So I talk I agree. about it all the time. I had to do, I had to do some work. Cause I was like, now that my day is long and calm, I had to be like, do I actually want a long day? Mm. Right. Like I actually had to like adjust to this new way of being well, again, nothing in clinic had ever changed. It was just like, well, now it's only two 30. Like, cause I was just like in the moment. Right. Cause mm-hmm. you're like, now it's two 30. And I wasn't like not paying attention to the day. And now that I'm paying attention, I'm like, do I actually want to be like this? Was it more pleasant back then? Cause I, you know, like buffering makes you not aware of the moment. Right. And it was like almost being like, Oh, I've created this new way of my day. Do I actually want that? And like learning to be, and I'm like, yes, I do. But I have to like, know that that's an okay way to be too. Mm-hmm. Instead of just buffering and drinking coffee and being rushed and like, yeah. you know, it's cause yeah. you get used to it for years. So Kristen, I love what you said about unconventional. You said uh, like something about like, you can be like an unconventional surgeon or OBG, mm-hmm. which I basically think is a surgeon. They're, they're synonymous to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could expound on that. Like, what does that mean to you? What does unconventional mean to you? Yeah. Unconventional to me means um, the awareness, I think, in today's society, especially as physicians, the awareness of your own value, not based on any metric or RVU or whatever productivity based or what your patients or bosses think about you, like an awareness of your value that comes from within and standing in that unapologetically is unconventional because that's not what you see around all the time. And so that's the, that's the basis of what unconventional means to me. And so most of the time when you can get to this point in your life, and I feel like both of you can probably relate to this is that there are many things that perhaps you won't be willing to do anymore. Number one, like there's some boundaries there, like um, either in clinic or with how you're going to work or what call you're going to do or how much you're going to accept for pay payment, all of these things. Um, you're not just going to be like, oh, well, this is what it is. It's I'm lucky to have this. It's like, nope, this is my value. And I'm going to demand that you should be treated and not in a, in a way that's, that's whatever it, it's just like, this is how it is. And there's an awareness of all of the expectations out there that either are from the patriarchy, but that's a whole nother story or from just expectations about what doctors should quote unquote should be. Um, And then from there, it's like asking the question of what do I want my life to be like? Like, what do I actually want my life to be like? What's my purpose here on this planet? And I love everything woo, 
So that's more of like, what's going to be fun for me to do? And I'm going to, how can I do more of that? And for me, that looks like right now I still work full time. I'm happy doing that for now, but I'm not like overly dedicated to my role as a physician. It's like being a physician is part of what my purpose is on this planet, but it's not like the whole purpose of my life on this planet. I'm also have other things that I'm going to do and it's going to be fun. So we bought an RV and we're probably going to maybe live in that for a year or something and go travel around that. I, we're going to do some, get into real estate. I put my house on Airbnb and tried to do that. So I feel like on the outside, it can look like anything. It can look like, or I planned an event. I wanted to plan a retreat. So I planned an adventure retreat and we took, I took a group of women zip lining in the woods this past summer, a group of women physicians. And it's like, being unconventional is really getting clear about what your value is and how what you're going to stand for and then doing that. <laughs> and it feels really scary. Um, but it actually, it's the most freedom I've ever felt in my life is to really lean into this um, unconventional side of me, which I think, I think we all have. Yeah. I think what, you know, one thing you're talking about is like, you're the driver of your life now. Yeah instead of you just going along with like, well, my, my chief wanted me to write this paper and my chief told me I needed to, or however it goes. And it's like, once you get there, like once you get where you are, there's no going back. Yeah. There's no like giving up you being the boss of your life anymore. I feel like without like significant yeah. awareness of that you're doing it. It's such an incredible place to be. Absolutely. And even because there are certainly circumstances about my job and about like, we're going through an acquisition right now. And it's a, it's a huge pain in the ass. Right. And even in those moments where there's a lot of C like circumstances that are not within my control, just knowing that I do have the power about how I approach anything and I can always walk away or not walk away or is always within my control. Even when the circumstances are not what I would choose there's always like, I'm never feeling like powerless anymore. And I think for me, um, that is a game changer about, you know, just how you feel about your life in general. Yeah, totally. Um, let's, let's do like a, I have a just like OB-GYN specific question. I guess it's just this OB-GYN specific circumstance of like, shit goes down in any surgery, no matter what yeah. kind of surgeon you are, but like shit goes down in OB-GYN. Yeah. Like, sadness and tragedy and like how, how has coaching helped you with like the realities of things aren't going to be perfect in this job and when they're not perfect it's super shitty yeah um it has changed the trajectory of my career because um i used to take any devastating outcome to be a personal failure on my part. Um, so much so that I like could not function without feeling personally responsible for a, uh, a horrible outcome. And what coaching has given me is this awareness that I'm really not that. <laughs> like um, I can't control as much as I wish I could. Um, and I will say that when it comes to litigation and lawsuits, 
that can be really devastating for any physician. And I think for OBGYNs, it's kind of like even before I was an o- decided to go into OBGYN, they were like, oh, well, you have to be prepared to get sued someday because of all the, the, neo- the neonatal stuff I deal with. But um, I will say that that in particular, like a lawsuit, when it is has to do with something horrific and awful, and of course that you would never want for anybody, that can take you down. It can take you down as a physician. It can ruin your career and sometimes be so devastating that um, leads to severe depression and sometimes suicide. It's a devastating reality. Um, And it's because of our own thoughts about how we should be able to control and therefore prevent every bad outcome ever. And that is the most dangerous thought we can think about anything. And when I was able to separate that and realize that I could go into my call with the best intentions knowing and doing the best I can, and someone could still die, a baby could still die, and it didn't mean anything about my value as a doctor or as a human, when I could really fully embody that, like in my heart and soul completely, um, everything changed because it doesn't mean that I don't feel bad and I don't want to, and I don't sob uncontrollably when there's a devastating outcome. It doesn't mean that I don't feel all those things, but it does mean that I don't question myself as a physician or my ability to give good care in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And that distinction is so important not just for being the best version of a doctor that you can be, but for really being able to do the job day in and day out when really horrific things happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have to think like you take imposter syndrome and then you take tragic outcome and litigation and you're like, that combo is just. Yeah. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. Cause then you're just like self you're, you're like, see, see, Mm -hmm. like and it's just oh my god what advice would you have for for any surgeon ob-gyn surgeon who is still kind of is wrapped up in the like it's my fault i could have done better i should be perfect where we're just like a small piece of advice to like help them see that there's a different way of seeing about this because they're like well no i am not worthy because i should be perfect like they're stuck in that what advice would you have Yeah, I think that this requires, the number one thing is self-compassion. I think you must provide yourself and really like feel that self-compassion. And this is different than grief, right? Like I can feel grief over the loss of a patient or a patient's baby, right? I, I can feel intense grief about that. And it's really easy for doubt to sneak in there and say, but what if you had just been a little bit faster or what if you just had whatever it is, right? Um, But when you can just stick with the grief and just allow yourself to feel that grief and a lot about what we talk about with sympathetic and parasympathetic has to do with allowing the thoughts to kind of fester in that grief can be a problem. But if you can just feel the grief in your body without thinking, just feel it and let it pass, with compassion, I think that's key. Because then what happens is that you realize that 
the thoughts that are going on in your brain are just like a replay loop of the same shit. And there's nothing new going on in there. It's all just the same crap. For what? For what purpose? And I can tell a story about the, the moment that I realized that this is key, this, this recognition of this self-doubt spiral and how devastating it could be to a career. Um, it was about a year and a half ago. I, was, I had been doing this work for a year, thank goodness. And I had, was doing hysterectomy and I had a complication. Um, and the, everyone did fine, the, the woman did fine, everything went fine, but it was a, it was a um, complication that required additional surgery and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it was, it was, um, I just was like, really? I never, it was one of the um, most significant complications I had had up to that point in my career intraoperatively. And I was, I, I'll never forget, I was in this surgery, it was in the moment realizing that it had just happened. And I just felt sick <laughs> to my, I felt so sick. And I, you, maybe if you've had a complication, you know that feeling of like this gut wrenching, like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I wanted to like, everything in my body was like, just telling me like, run out of this OR, like leave everything behind. You're, it's, you're not good enough. What were you thinking? You're not good enough to do this. And um, I had just, in that moment, I was like, I have a choice. I have a choice here. And I took a deep breath because that's a really helpful way to calm your sympathetic nervous system. I just took a few deep breaths and I said, okay, um, I have two options. And the options are, I can wallow in the doubt that I'm not enough, I'm not good enough. I can fall victim to my own, this, uh, this self-doubt spiral. And what that, what's that, what's that going to do? I'm not going to be able to focus. I'm not going to be able to fix what happened. And then I'm not going to be able to serve my patient and continue to care for her the best way that I could. Or, so I was like, that's one thing I can do. I've been down that road. I know what happens. What happens is that six months down the road, I'm still, I'm humiliated. I'm embarrassed. I can't talk to patients anymore. I don't, I stopped doing surgery. And then what? And then I said, the other option I could just try it out, experiment, is that how about I just decide that um, I'm going to give this patient the best care she's ever had. I'm going to continue doing that. I did that preoperatively for her. So far in the surgery, things were going fine until this one moment. Am I going to let this one moment define the rest of my career as a surgeon or not? So I made that decision and it felt really hard um, because it was unfamiliar to me in that, with that level of severity. But I just stayed in the moment. It's like, okay, what's the next surgical step? Don't focus on any, don't let, the, don't let the chatter go on about how I have to talk to the patient's family and then tell her this happened. Stay in the moment, do the next step, finish the surgery. And I did. And everything went fine. And then I went and talked to the family, same step. I'm going to give her the best care. I'm going to do the best thing for this patient. No matter what, I did everything, I'm, I am still her surgeon. I'm still her doctor. And went and talked to the family. And of course it was devastating. I talked to the patient and of course it was devastating, but it was this underlying feeling of, I feel, I feel upset that this happened. I, I feel upset that I learned that I had to, you know, quote unquote, I learned something from this case, but I don't feel upset about my ability to care for her post-operatively forever, you know, and it all, it went on fine. She did really well at her six week visit. She said to me, thank you so much. This was the best care. It make, like, brings me to tears still. This was the best care I've ever had. 
thank you so much. And she had a significant surgical complication. And in that moment, I was like, holy shit. It really is about what we think. Because if I had gone down the road that I was, that was most familiar to me, which was to make myself feel like I wasn't enough to stop doing surgery, to wallow in the guilt and the shame, I would not have been in a place to provide her that care. And when that, when that happened, I'll never, that was like, this is how you do things. Because now, not only did I become a better surgeon because I took what I needed to learn from that case, but I took the, the lesson about my own awareness and how my ability to be a surgeon and to be a great surgeon and a great doctor is not defined by a moment. It's not defined by a moment. It's defined by a timeline of care that you provide to your patients. And so often as surgeons, we let a moment define us. So that'll never, I'll never do that again. And I, I hope that other surgeons don't either because you're so much bigger than that. Wow. That's an amazing story. That's, that's so good. Um, I want to, I want to, this is. Uh, Kelly, can I just add something here really quickly before we shift? Yeah. I think it's, um, if anybody listening to this just takes something away, I think this is it because everybody, every human being, but really surgeons in particular, we face shitty things all the time. And what you have just described is this beautiful reason to do thought work, to embody these principles, because it gives you the power to decide how you show up to the shit. Mm -hmm. And the way you decided and described so um, really beautifully and in a detailed way that we can all imagine what that must've been like for you we've all been there and to be able to decide, okay, this is how I'm going to show up. This is who, this is who I want to be in this moment. When we so often don't feel like we have a choice, but we really do. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That was really important. You're Amazing. Um, let's talk about love. I want to talk about love more in general, because I feel like I'm just, I'm just discovering this, like, part of me that has love and it can have love for everything. And I'm like, has this always been here? And I've just covered it up with like my training and my, you know, my trauma response coping skills. And I'm like, and I see it now and it'll come out and I'm like, Whoa, I've got love for them. Whoa. I've got love for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I feel like I need to read the books or talk to the people who understand this better, because I feel like this is kind of part of the work of like, once you let go of fighting with reality and trying to control everything and judging how people should be doing everything. You kind of like get rid of all those things and then you're left with, I love, I love that that person's so goofy. I love that that mm-hmm. person's so angry right now. Like, isn't that mm-hmm. entertaining to watch? Like you're kind of left with this love and I have no education on what I'm finding. So mm-hmm. do either one of you like want to jump in on love? And make me not sound as woo-woo-y as I just sounded. I love that you sounded so woo-woo-y. What I'll say, and I love to talk about this because it is really woo. And where I um, really realized that love is actually our default setting is with Jill Bolte-Taylor. Have you heard of her? 
the neuroscientist. He's the TED Talk brain person. The TED Talk brain person. Yeah, the most watched <laughs> TED Talk of all time. So she's a neuroanatomist who had a stroke and it was her whole left hemisphere and she was a neuroanatomist. So she knew like what was happening. And she talks about the, so now she talks a lot about, she has a new book out called Full Brain Living. And I got to talk to her last summer on a call, like a Zoom call. And she is so, it's just like, it like emanates from her is love. And I read her book called Whole Brain Living. And she talks about the left and right hemispheres of the brain. So the stuff that we think of as woo, quote unquote woo, like love and joy and curiosity and creative creativity and like arts and colors and fun and play, all of that stuff is actually like, that's all right hemisphere of the brain stuff. But what happens is that we are all human beings in society. And then we go on to be physicians and surgeons and it's really left brain, like super left brain, like policies, procedures, memorize all these steps and these medicines and all these complications and what you do about what blah, blah, blah. But the problem with that is that we're, we like have this, I call it like left brain hypertrophy, right? Where it's like, we have to know all these things, but the, but the left brain is also the self-doubt, the criticism, the judgment, all of this stuff that feels like crap, the perfectionism, that's all left brain. So here we are, these doctors who want to do the best we can, and we're so left brain. And it's like our poor right brain, we never use anymore because through our medical school or residency, it's like, you don't have time for hobbies. You don't have time for fun. You don't really have time to focus on feeling good because you have to be a good doctor. And then we all, we graduate, we're attendings and we're all like, is this, is this, is this all there is? Like, is this really it? And it's because we've lost that connection to the right hemisphere, the love, the play, the joy. And it's like, woo, that's what we say. Oh, that's woo. When in reality, that's actually like, we're supposed to be functioning from the right hemisphere of the brain. Like we're supposed to be functioning from that part of the brain, which is the presence and the, you know, presence and curiosity and love, like you described Kelly. And then the, we, we're supposed to just use the left hemisphere as like a tool, you know? Um, but instead we have it backwards. It's like we we're functioning from the left hemisphere. And then every now and then, maybe if we're lucky, we'll borrow a few moments of laughter from the right hemisphere. So I shift that now in my, in my practice. And what shifting that looks like is that Number one, nothing's that serious. And it doesn't mean that I don't think a hemorrhage is serious. It's like, I just borrow the tools that I know from the left side of my brain when there's a hemorrhage happening and everyone is still fine. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you're become less of a doctor. In fact, I'm become a better doctor because I have love as my foundation and it's not my ego. It's, oh, this patient is asking me about what she saw on Google about her endometriosis. Why doesn't she think I'm a good enough doctor? It's like, oh, this patient I think is feeling really scared and she just needs me to listen more and I'm going to do that. So that's what I'll say about love. <laughs> I love that. I think we have a book club. Whole brain living for March. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really good. It's really good. Okay. So here's my response to the love question. I think what, what I, um, I, I, I don't know how to make this as eloquent as what Kristen just said. However, in my trauma recovery coaching experience, what I, I have come to understand is, is trauma, no matter how that is defined for a human, is this form of disconnection. And ultimately, what is the connection? It's love. Are you disconnected from love from a caregiver? Are you disconnected from love 
from like the environment? Are you disconnected from love from yourself? In some way, there's a disconnection. And in the recovery of the connection, what a trauma recovery coach does is provides a space to be a compassionate witness. So that's basically a space for love to exist. Mm. And then what the trauma recovery coach does is calms herself to a point where then her client who is activated or triggered is able to use those mirror neurons, right? It's like tuning in. We, we call it attunement actually. So when you are emanating love, then the other person is able to kind of come in on that wavelength and tune in. And this is all mired in neuroscience as well. Um, so that is the most scientific way I can explain my current understanding of it uh, and how love plays such an important part with relationship, not only relationship to yourself, which I think coaching is like the foundational reason to do or, or way to develop a relationship with yourself, but also relationship with other people, like Kristen just described, talking to the patient where what's happening for them like we have the ability to become attuned with that. And then their experience of that, of that encounter is so much more intimate and so much more attuned and meaningful, right? Like they feel like you, you, you saw them, you heard them, they matter to you. And that's all like love stuff. But my whole life, I have been this person, like before I had language to describe this, I've always been somebody who felt like I could see other, I'm super sensitive. And this comes from my trauma background, like what I experienced as a kid. Like I'm like hypersensitive to the needs of other people. And um, I'm trying to figure out a way to like, sort of like tie this into to love. But um, I always felt like I could like almost feel what other people were feeling. And to me, that meant we were all connected in some sort of way. And I didn't know any other way to describe that than like loving, you know? And also like love is what isn't, it's not judgment. It's not, um, well, judgment. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanna wrap up if we can on confidence. So say we've got some surgeons, they're new, or maybe they're not, maybe they've been doing this for a long time. And they're like, if only I had the confidence, if only I had the confidence and like, they're beating themselves up. Can you give them some tips for confidence in themselves and like how it comes from within instead of like that external, I just have to read one more book to get my confidence. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we have been trained to believe that confidence comes after experiment experience and that is wrong, actually. Confidence comes before experience, really. Um, meaning that experience is a valuable thing. Doing thing, doing I meant the, the same surgery over and over again helps you to become um, very skilled and more efficient, but that's not what is required for confidence. And we know this because we often think of someone who we trained with, who is extremely confident. <laughs> and maybe we're like, oh, why are they like, maybe to work on some, maybe being not so confident, right? So I think what we all worry about, especially as women, we don't wanna be overly confident. We don't wanna be too arrogant. So we err on the side of self-doubt and not being confident at all. 
And what I figured out is that number one, confidence is a choice. Confidence is a choice. It's not going to be granted to me someday by the gods of surgery who have now said, I am confident enough to do a hysterectomy and therefore I will feel confident. Like, no, it's a choice that I can make today and just decide I'm going to be confident. And that does not mean that I do weird things and I'm like a cowboy, right? It means that I'm confident and I'm aware of the skills that I have today. And I do surgery or procedures or anything based on those skills. And it also means that I'm very aware of where I need to work on my skills. And I do that without judgment for myself or that I'm not enough. So that's what I'll say. Confidence is a choice. It's not based on experience or anything else. And number two, visualization is very powerful with increasing confidence because our brains do not know the difference between what happens in reality and what happens in our brains. Our brains are in a dark box. They have no clue where the input is coming from, whether we have created it with other neurons or it's coming in through our five senses. So what that means is there have been studies done on this with medical students and residents in urology and general surgery and OBGYN where they have looked at groups and they've said, okay, here you go, OBGYN resident. This is how you do a cystoscopy. And they showed them. And then they split the groups and they said, okay, you residents go over there and read about how to do a cystoscopy. And you residents, imagine yourself doing a cystoscopy. And then they compared them. And every single study like this shows that guided imagery or visualization improves skill level faster efficiency and overall confidence in the OR than just reading a book about it. So if you just spend a few minutes visualizing yourself doing surgery or doing a procedure beforehand, your brain thinks you've done it in real life. You have cre you are making the neural pathways that you then can use in reality. So that's about confidence. Amazing. Jess, any final words? I want to be your BFF. <laughs> <laughs> wow it's so generous of you to come spend your saturday morning with us and sharing your perspectives and thank you just thank you thank you i cannot tell you how strongly i feel about how we have the ability like each person kind of showing up to do this work has the ability to create these little ripples where then over time, what we will do is literally change the landscape of the way we train residents, of the way we perform as physicians, the way we conduct ourselves in this current healthcare system that is such a sort of, excuse me, challenging system to work with. And I just am so excited to hear your perspective on all of it. So thank you. My pleasure. It was so fun to chat with you both. <laughs>